And so Ephesians 5, we're going to read the first 21 verses and talk more about what life in Christ looks like. So here's the word of the Lord. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as proper among the saints. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is, an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not associate with them. For one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. For the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. And try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Take no part in unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. For it is shameful even to speak of the things that they do in secret. But when anything is exposed by light, it becomes visible. For anything that becomes visible is light. Therefore, it says, Awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise but as wise, making the best use of the time because the days are evil. Therefore don't be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. Do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery. Be filled, but rather be filled with the Holy Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with all your heart, giving thanks always for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting one another. Out of reverence for Christ. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of God stands forever. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your servant Paul, and we thank you for these words, and they confront everybody in this room. And we struggle how to process them, and we want a way out, and we want this not to be difficult. But I pray, dear God, as we consider your word, we would find that though this is a challenge, there's something beautiful here. Attract us to new life with the beauty. You've designed it to be, dear God. Please draw our hearts towards you and soften us. In your name we pray. Amen. Um, I don't watch a lot of golf. And uh, golf illustration is kind of going out of my wheelhouse. It's not college football, Buffy, or CrossFit. But I do watch the majors every year. And uh, in particular, I enjoy watching Phil Mickelson, if y'all are familiar with golf at all. And uh, Phil Mickelson is, I mean, he's been one of the, Top four to five golfers probably over the last ten years. And there's an interesting fact about Phil, if you know anything about golf, is he's left-handed. And there are very few successful left-handed golfers on the PGA Tour. And here's this guy who's won a couple of majors and played left-handed. But what's even more interesting about the fact that he plays left-handed is that he is not left-handed. If you know anything about golf, he is actually right-handed. He writes with his right hand, he throws with his right hand, does everything else with his right hand. But he plays golf, and not just plays it well, but plays it at an elite level, left-handed. And actually, in his biography that came out a couple of years ago, the opening chapter explains why that is. And the reason that happened is because when Phil was 18-month-old, his dad played golf, and his dad would take him out in the backyard and taught him how to swing. And the way he taught him how to swing is his dad lined up, and his dad was right-handed, and his dad would swing in the backyard. And 18-month-old Phil stood across from him and mirrored him. So, his dad swinging right-handed and Phil facing him was swinging left-handed as an 18-month-old. And his dad would explain the swing and then he'd turn Phil around and Phil couldn't swing right-handed because he couldn't see his dad. 
So he would always turn back around and he would swing left-handed. And that's actually how he learned golf, which is pretty cool. And uh, that, that's Ephesians 5. Because Phil was actually so fixated. This is what's beautiful about that illustration. He was so fixated on his dad and wanted so much to be like his dad and to imitate his dad that his desire to be like his dad even overcame his natural tendencies. All of his natural tendencies right-handed. Right? But he wanted to imitate his dad so much that desire overcame even his natural bent to be otherwise. To act a different way. This is Ephesians 5. Paul calls us to new life. He says, do it as beloved children. Be imitators of your father. The Christian life, what it's not, is it's not morally policing yourself so that you don't get in trouble. The Christian life is imitating your dad. His intention is to grow in his people the kind of love that he actually has for you. Grace saves you, but it doesn't leave you alone. Salvation and peace with God and restoration with him is not by works, it's by grace alone. This is Ephesians 1 through 3. But the grace that comes to you by faith, it doesn't leave you alone. Because God's plan is humanity restored. Is that His plan is actually you becoming transformed into the likeness of Christ. And not in order that He would love you, but actually because He already does love you. This is what we've been saying all quarter. Order is everything. He doesn't call us to new life so that we may be saved, but rather because we are His. He's saying, this is what life in your new family looks like. This is what parenting is. All parenting. This is Phil Mickelson. He doesn't swing in order to earn his status with his father. He swings because he knows he's his father's son. And he's fixated on his dad. And he wants to be like him. By faith in Christ, your status is established. You are a cherished forgiven child of God and now like all good parents he is teaching us how to live out that reality his love rightly understood and experienced is so sweet and it's so pure and it's so good and it's so unstoppable that his intention is that his love becomes your fixation so that in Jesus love already established for you you would be like Phil Mickelson staring so intently at your father that you start to mimic him even against your natural tendencies. Walk in love. What does this imitation entail? Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children. There's three times we're told to walk in this passage, and those are our three points. First, in verse 2, he tells us to walk in love. In verse 8, to walk in light. And in verse 15, to walk in wisdom. When Paul talks about imitating God, he talks about walking in love, walking in light, walking in wisdom. So what does walking in love mean? Here's the passage we're all excited about. Walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and a sacrifice to God. And then what does Paul launch into immediately? A diatribe on sexual immorality. Why? All right, let's talk about imitating God in love. We need to talk about sex. Why does he go there? And I want to suggest that The Bible, far from being anti-sexuality, is actually very pro-sexuality. And because God actually made sex, 
and he intended it to be an awesome, life-giving, life-producing. When you read Genesis 1 and 2, when you read the Song of Solomon, the Bible obviously loves the pleasure and the goodness of sex, but also sexuality properly understood and properly engaged in in the way that God designed it actually teaches us about what it means to be human. It teaches us about what love is. It teaches us about who God is. It actually, sexuality rightly engaged in and understood, actually grows you in Christian character. And the forms... uh, Sex is one of God's most glorious instruments in teaching us about love. And it's a teaching tool, and when we misuse it in different ways... What it does is it breaks us. It lies to us. And it breaks down our humanity. And this is why there's so much drama and there's so much pain and confusion and there's so much hurt and there's so much pettiness when we experience and engage in sexuality outside of God's design. This is why it's a source of huge frustration even though we can't kind of stop ourselves. And the forms of sexual immorality... Here the Greek word is porneia. You recognize the root. It's vast. It's not simply actions, but it's also fantasies. It's not just things that we do with people, but it's things we do alone. It's not just what we do, but it's also what we look at. And Paul even Paul is so deeply concerned with sexual purity that he even groups undignifying speech about sexuality, coarse joking, treating lightly something that God cares about profoundly. He treats that as equally Dangerous and dark. So that he brings in that language of even joking about it's not cool. And so sex, and, and by that I mean all sexual expression, part of God's purpose in it is to actually illustrate and to demonstrate the intimacy of covenant love. It, he wants, sex was given to us to demonstrate that within the bonds of a covenant which is a marriage, there is safety for full exposure. That quite literally, physically, but also psychologically and spiritually, your most vulnerable parts within the safety of a covenant can be exposed. And you can trust that you can expose these things to someone because they've bound themselves to you. And that they will treat your most vulnerable parts and your most intimate things with honor, And you have no cause for shame. And that there will be a mutual actually care for each other. There is a mutual pleasure giving within that in a life producing context. That is sex within covenant. And the bond that you've already entered into is then actually strengthened. It's renewed and it's more deeply enjoyed and experienced. Sex actually enhances it. Right? This is why anger, frustration, territorialism, pettiness, which comes with insecurity, what that, all that arises is from being vulnerable and intimate and giving your most secret things to someone who has no obligation to be with you tomorrow. That creates terror inside of us and it functionally actually dehuman, dehumanizes us over time. And you see, when we start talking about sex that way, right? 
You can use all those words to describe the physical intimacy of marriage and the emotional intimacy of marriage and the psychological and the spiritual and the social intimacy of marriage. And you can use all of that language to, des- to describe God's love for his people. Because all throughout Scripture, it, we read from Ezekiel. In Ezekiel, there are very graphic passages about God's love for his people. And it's described very much so in sexual terms. And he's teaching us something. He gave us sexuality for all sorts of good things, but one of the big things is to teach us about his love for us. And that's why in the in sexuality it's intended to teach about intimacy and safety and humanity and self-giving covenant. And so this is what it means is apart from the covenant bond of marriage and hooking up and pornography and masturbation and all sorts of arousal and making out all those things, we are acting out of self-service instead of self-gifting. We're doing the opposite of what sex was intended to do. We're telling a lie to each other about what love is, and it breaks us, and it breaks our understanding of love. Because sex within marriage is self-giving and relationship nourishing. You do with your body what you've actually done with the rest of your life. You say, I am for you. My body is for you. My life is for you. My money is for you. My time is for you. It is the act of self-giving. Sexuality outside of marriage is self-service. I will get pleasure from you, but I will not give my whole self to you. I will get what I want, but I will not make my life about yours. And so sexual immorality, sex outside of marriage, is the opposite of love. This is why he... Listen to what he... But sexual immorality, impurity, and covetousness. He groups covetousness, which is greed, with sexual immorality. He equates the two. They're all forms of self-seeking, which is the diametric opposite of self-giving. And God takes love so seriously that he opposes everything that lies about love. This is why I hate romantic comedies, because they tell lies about love. Right? That, that, that's maybe a personal issue I have. But, but this is why, even in this context, God's like, I don't even like jokes about this. Because I think love is so profound and beautiful. It is not funny to me when you make it mundane. This passage is not a call to morally police yourself so that you don't get in trouble with God. It's a call to see in Christ what true love is and to see in marriage what true love is. It is self-giving. A whole, what love is, is a whole life disposition. Not, not something in your schedule where you make yourself feel better because you did something selfless. A whole life disposition in which actually everything in you, there's a posture towards others. And that posture is self-giving and not self-seeking. And self, sexual immorality is so grievous to God because it lies to us about what love and life is. And when people, this is why when people express words of affection in the middle of making out whatever it is, I I love you or I I have these feelings, whatever it is, and 15 minutes later they leave, right? Their actions and their words don't square. Or even three days later they leave. Or six months later they leave, right? Their actions and our words don't square. It actually proves that we were lying about love. And Paul even says in verse 6, there will be voices that attempt to reinforce this faulty notion of what love is, that deceive, that reinforce the lies about sexuality and love. And God's whole intention is to restore the world with His life-giving love and work into you a heart of life-giving love. And therefore, He opposes anybody 
who promotes the opposite agenda. He loves love too much to be okay with people that hate it. That's what he's saying in those uncomfortable verses in verse 5 and 6. In verse 5, there's a warning. There's no way you can be in the kingdom of God and not be in the process of bringing our sexual lives into the wisdom and desire of God's tension. It doesn't mean that there's not mercy for falling. God completely understands this is a process and that it can be long and that we're all in it. But it does mean this, that there's no credibility to your claim to be in Christ and revel in His love if you are not in that process of seeking to bring your sexuality into conformity with His design. Bringing your sexuality into the place where it is self-giving, covenant love. God is not mean about sexuality. That happens every night. God is not mean about sexuality. He actually loves it way more than we do. And He longs for the power of it to teach all of us about true love rather than demean our humanity by lying about love. And so look at your Father. Walk in love. How? By looking at Christ in the way He loved us. He did it how? By self-giving. Binding Himself to you to give you love and joy. And He intends sexuality to mirror and to reinforce that. Good sex within marriage builds your Christian character. It teaches you about Jesus. And sex out of marriage distorts us as people. It rocks us. Walk in love as Christ loved you in the whole life disposition of self-giving, self-denying service to others simply for their joy and their light. That is the love of Christ for you, and that's what He calls you to. Have you ever considered sexuality that way? That actually it's something cooler and way more powerful than simply urges. You stare at your father. You know what might happen. You might start to swing the right way, even against maybe your natural tendencies. Can you be honest? What we need to do is we need to be honest about how deeply our sexual experiences actually imprint on us. Either lies or truth about love. They're doing one or the other. And God's saying, flee from the lies. Love is so too good for you to be okay flirting with the lies. Walk in love. Secondly, he calls us to walk in light. Verse 8. Walk as children in the light. Light is everything, he tells us, that is good and right and true. Imitation of God, of Christ, involves growing into a person in which more and more what is true and what is right and what is good begin to dominate and define your life. And lies and what is wrong and what is evil are increasingly put away. In Christ, you are to imagine what does a beautiful life look like. And it's not talking about going on a mission trip or working for a nonprofit or digging freshwater wells in Africa. God is talking about every moment of every day. What does that life look like if it were beautiful? Let your life be an advertisement of truth and of beauty and of goodness and light in every every interaction. And, And what it doesn't say, actually, it doesn't say walk in the light. It actually says, you are the light. That's what Paul tells us. Your life is the light of the Lord. And what that means is, as the good news of His love actually begins to transform you, you start to put together a beautiful life. And your life, the Christians at Stanford, actually lived out in kindness 
and in patience and in service and in forgiveness and with love, you are the light of the Lord. You are the goodness of God to people. You actually are the truth of God to the world. And when you do this, what does he tell us light does? Light exposes darkness. And this is a good thing. What does that mean? What does it mean that if you, if you begin to walk in as the light of the Lord, that you expose darkness? It means, here's an example. Have you been in a situation ever where another person acted or carried themselves in a way that exposed you? Elizabeth and I were talking earlier. I remember in college, one time I um, got my credit card bill, junior year. I was an econ major, so I was getting the Wall Street Journal and not reading it. But... Um, <laughs> Everybody was impressed that I was getting it, though, right? Um, Canceled my subscription after a while because it's expensive to get a daily paper. Six months later, I just, I'm not somebody that looks over my credit card bill very often. Six months later, I have six months of charge, which is a couple hundred dollars to the Wall Street Journal. And I'm just furious. And I, I... I typically don't get very, like, expressively angry. I like to hide it and smile and all that kind of stuff, which is my own problem. But this is one of the few times there was, like, an outburst of anger. And I called, called the Wall Street Journal, and I just, like, lady answered the phone, and I just blew up. Just, like, screaming at this lady, like, what kind of, what's going on here? Y'all owe me several hundred dollars. You stole this money. Just accusing, you know, this is just some phone call center lady. But I just... I'm not one of these people, I don't get upset at restaurants. I'm not somebody that is like a nightmare and like customer relations, all that kind of stuff. But this time I was. I was actually kind of trying it on. I was like, I wonder if I could be this kind of person. (laughs) It It was definitely a willful decision. And like 45 seconds into my diatribe, I just hear laughter. And she's just laughing. And so finally I stopped and she was just laughing. She's like, Mr. Wood. We're going to give you your money. And in that moment, I was exposed. Right? Her kindness and her patience and her lightheartedness exposed my anger. If she had responded in anger, guess what? My anger wouldn't have been exposed. I would have felt justified in it. Right? I would have been confirmed in it. And it still would have been wrong. But her kindness exposed me. That's what walking in the light does. When... when, when, Paul talks about how it exposes darkness. This means Christians in your work, in business, because of the way they handle themselves, they actually expose unethical practices and deception and cheating. I'm not saying as a tattletale. It's not what Paul's saying. But your honesty and your humility actually expose deceit. It causes people to see deception. This means in your social settings, because of your kindness and because of your love for the outsider, because of your patience, even because you actually take responsibility for the way you have hurt others, because of your forgiveness, you actually expose, Christians actually expose by virtue of their behavior, not tattletaling and not accusation, but simply by virtue of being kind and patient and forgiving and even confessing people, you actually expose backbiting and gossip and manipulation and pettiness. This actually means as you pursue a career and you seek to do it because you simply want to do good work. And your work you recognize is simply your service to God and to your neighbor. You actually expose hubris and greed and vanity. This means your chastity actually exposes the folly of sexual morality. This means actually you make elitism look gross by the way you actually love unwanted people. 
This means you actually make busyness look gross because of the way you rest. Because this is what it means. Beautiful things reveal ugly things. And I know a lot of y'all in this room have had this experience. Many of us didn't know we were drinking crappy coffee at Starbucks until we went to Phil's. (laughs) Right? And Phil's exposes Starbucks. As the great, that might, I mean, I guess appropriate application. Y'all need to drink fills. But, but seriously, as, as the grace of God and Jesus starts to transform you into a person that's no longer tyrannized by self seeking love, but you're actually now free to dispose your life to truth and to service and to worship, it shows the world that our lives of self obsession are the Starbucks of living. And that there is a Phil's kind of way to live. (laughs) Y'all get what I'm saying though? And you might even be thinking like, oh, that sounds arrogant. It's like Christians are going around and parading themselves as these kind of morally superior uh, people. Okay, but here's the problem. I've come to associate Christians with that. But here's the problem. (laughs) Christians actually expose arrogance with their humility. Genuine humility, and humility never revels in its superiority. That doesn't make sense. It can't do that, or it's not humility. Christians actually expose other. This, so this is not an arrogant or proud enterprise, and Christianity actually exposes proud and arrogance when we confess sin. You can't read what we read earlier today and think the rest of the world, they need to be like me. You actually read what we read today and think, Lord, save me from me and save the rest of the world from me. You know what happens when you read that? We, pride in us is exposed. Pride in the world is exposed. This is walking in the light. Lastly, walk in wisdom. What is wisdom? Right, verse 15. Look carefully how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best of you, use of your time because the days are evil. This is what wisdom is. is my adaptation of my Old Testament professor in seminary. It's skillfully making beautiful decisions in the gray parts of life. Wisdom is skillfully making decisions, uh, beautiful decisions, in the gray parts of life. Now, this is huge. I'll talk about this real briefly. But there are some movements, and a lot of us have kind of struggled with this, and it's okay, but there are movements within Christianity that presume that apart from any indication in Scripture, that God is going to make all your decisions for you. It's not Christianity. And it assumes that like what you've got to do in life in order to make decisions is you need to read some impulses, and you need to read some gut feelings, and you need to read some external signs, and you have to discern what God's trying to tell you. What is God's will for me? And there are a lot of faulty assumptions in that kind of approach to decision-making. And the first one is this. When God cares about something, He's clear. That approach assumes when God cares about something, He's not very clear. When God cares about something, He's very clear about it. If you want to know what God wants you to do, He's actually spoken really clearly about the things He really cares about that you do above all else. He doesn't care about who you room with next semester, but here's what He does care about. That you love Him and no other gods. That you don't take His name in vain. That you rest. That you honor your parents. That you don't lie. That you don't kill. That you don't commit sexual immorality. That you don't covet. You see, God's really clear about what He wants. When He cares about something, He's clear. 
But secondly, the other faulty kind of thinking in, in, in that, that realm of Christianity is like always trying to figure out what are the signs, what is God trying to tell me to do next, is this. That makes God out to be a bad parent to think that way. Bad parents, maybe some of you experienced this, they micromanage their children's life decisions on into adulthood. Good parents impart to their children wisdom so that their children actually become the type of people who have the faculties for making good decisions on their own. If you think God's going to micromanage all of your housing situations and career situations, you're actually accusing Him of being a bad parent, the kind of parent that doesn't teach His children how to grow up. The call to wisdom recognizes there's a whole host of life decisions that are gray. By that, I mean that they don't have ethical implications. They're not moral issues, right? What to major in, room with, what, what, whether or not you're going to study later tonight, what to do this weekend. And those decisions God has not spoken to. Those decisions require wisdom. And if God was simply going to tell you what to do each time, He wouldn't tell you to cultivate wisdom because you wouldn't know it. Sorry, you wouldn't need wisdom, right? If he was like, don't worry about wisdom, I'm just going to tell you what to do each time. But God is clearly concerned with you becoming wise. If all he ever did is make all those decisions for you, you'd never grow up and be an adult and learn how to make decisions on your own. And this kind of thinking about God's will makes him out to be the bad kind of parent that prevents their child from growing up. What he wants for you is what every good parent wants, is for you to become a wise person. Parents love that. Good parents do. But but you're becoming wise because you're getting a grasp on who he is, what life in his family looks like, what reality is. You're getting a grasp on who you are because you're engaging Scripture and you're understanding humanity and reality and life. And you begin to know how to skillfully make decisions in all those non-ethical areas of life. And when it says, don't be foolish, but understand the will of God, he's not saying, don't be foolish, but let God make all of your decisions for you. He's saying, the will of God for you is to grow in wisdom. If you're wondering, should I go abroad next quarter, uh, whether, how do I figure out if that's the will of God, how to decide, this is what his will is. His will is that you should become a wise person and make a decision. Then he gives us some specific areas of wisdom, right? He goes into time. Time's an interesting resource. Make the best use of the time. Time is the only resource you can't save. The time that you have now and the time that you have today, you can't get it back. Any money that you don't spend today, you have access to tomorrow. But that's not true of your time. You either used it well or you didn't, and there's no changing that. It's gone now. There's a word translated, it's translated here, make the best use of. If you have like NIV, I think it says something like redeem. And it's actually the word purchase, to buy your time. Have you all ever had a gift card that has an expiration date on it? That's what every minute is. You got a 60 second gift card and it expires in 58 seconds. And you can't redeem it after that. And goes for every minute and every day of your life. Will you spend it well? Wisdom understands time and uses it well. Will it be taken from you or will you use it well? Your most valuable resource is actually, it's not your brain and it's not your money. Your most valuable resource is your time. 
Wisdom gets that. It understands that. And so it doesn't use it foolishly. So do you have a plan for your time? This is wisdom. It doesn't mean that you have to be serious. God intends for leisure and rest and recreation to be a part of your time. It doesn't mean you have to be serious all the time. It doesn't, doesn't mean all everybody go back and work on your P-sets till 3 a.m. That would actually be a poor use of your time. Oh, I have to take time seriously now and do all my homework. No. <laughs> I suspect that actually for a lot of us to buy our time, to redeem it and use it well, it actually means we need to buy back time from busyness. That recognize rest is a biblically commanded way to redeem your time, that you need to rest so that you can realize, you've got to rest, so you can realize God's love for you and your values not conditioned on your productivity. Your time will actually be better served and you will grow in wisdom if you'd actually stop for a while. If you actually did nothing, you need to take some of those 60-second gift cards, maybe even 60-minute gift cards, maybe even like 24-hour gift cards, and do nothing. And you'd be very served, you'd serve, be served very well. So you know God actually loves you apart from your accomplishment and your work. He talks about time, and then the passage we're all excited about. And do not get drunk with wine. That is debauchery. So, all right, this is just for the fraternity guys. Everybody else can go, I'm just kidding. <laughs> this is a joke. Um, playing in three, okay. I know, I love y'all. Um, stop getting drunk, it's debauchery, and be filled with the Holy Spirit. It's in the Bible. First, briefly, let's recognize the Bible celebrates wine. Psalm 104 talks about how God made wine so that it will gladden the heart of man. Jesus makes wine as his first miracle and gives it to people that have had a glass. Like John actually says, they've already had some and Jesus gives them more. Okay? (laughs) I can say this in California. Saying that in South Carolina was a little dicey, but it's biblical. And I can tell you this, if your question is, what is drunkenness? There's a right way to have that conversation. I don't want to have it up here right now, but I can tell you this. If your goal is to find that precise line where if you step over it, it's drunkenness, and you're like, I want to find out exactly where that is so I can live right here, I can go ahead and tell you, that's not wisdom. Okay? If you're asking that question, we're kind of already down a not a healthy path. But the issue at hand... Why these two things? It's very interesting. Drunkenness in the Holy Spirit. And I think this is the reason why. Why do we get drunk? Why do we really get drunk? Think of it more deeply. It's medication is what it is. It's I like who I am when I'm drunk. It's much more relaxing to be me then. I like the life that I have when I'm drunk. We talk about how it lowers our inhibitions. I am an inhibited person. Therefore, I need to get drunk in order to relax. Do you see it? The desire, the need, the process of getting drunk is actually an implicit act of self-judgment. I don't want to be who I am. I've got to rest from being me. In fact, I don't know how to be who I am, and I can't handle life as who I am, so I'll medicate. What drunkenness is, is is actually exchanging the truth of our insecurity and our self-loathing for a temporary lie that we tell ourselves, I'm awesome and carefree now. I can't handle reality, so I'm going to choose to lie about it for a while with chemicals. So why is the Holy Spirit juxtaposed against that? Because the Holy Spirit is the Spirit of Truth. 
He makes us deal with truth. To be filled with the Spirit is to be convinced of the true things and live out of the implication of those true things. So Jesus says, when He talks about the Holy Spirit in John 16, 8, the Spirit comes and actually convicts us concerning sin. But He also convicts us concerning the righteousness of God. Drunkenness says, I can't face my life, so I'll hide from it for a while. The Spirit says, Yes, actually, there's much to be sad and frustrated about, but instead of pretending that it's not there temporarily and waking up with a hangover and trying to deal with it then, what the Spirit does is it says this. The Spirit comes and says, This is the Lamb of God, Jesus Christ. He comes to take away the sin of the world. He is slow to anger. He's abounding in steadfast love. He's making all things new. He knows your brokenness. And by the blood of Jesus, you are known and you are forgiven and you are loved. The Holy Spirit... And drunkenness are just two different ways of dealing with disappointment. You can hide from it and pretend it doesn't exist temporarily. Or you can hear there's hope. The call from drunkenness is actually a call to reality. And to find that there's a real solution to it, not a temporary chemical fix. The Spirit gives us the possibility of real joy in the midst of broken life. And drunkenness only offers us fake joy by pretending life isn't broken. Wisdom accepts and deals with the truth, and foolishness hides from it. Close with this, Paul transitions, real briefly, into talking about singing. Right from that. Be filled with the Holy Spirit, addressing one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, singing and making the melody of the Lord to the Lord with all your heart, giving thanks always and everything to God. And it's not just singing Paul starts to talk about, but singing to each other. Did you know that you're actually supposed to be ministered to by other Christians singing? This, what we do in here and what you do in church, is not you connecting simply with God. It is to God, right? Making melody to the Lord. But it's also, Paul says, it's addressing one another. We need to hear each other's voices. Singing is not your little private musical show between you and God. That would be really weird, right? It's like all these people doing their little private thing in the room together. You're supposed to be addressing, we're supposed to be addressing each other and hearing from each other in our psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. We're supposed to sing the truth about God and life to each other. Here's why. Because in one sense, the truths of Scripture are made profound and they're made persuasive to our minds through preaching. And in really good ways, oratory is great. But in ways that preaching and rhetoric and oratory can never do, truths enliven our hearts when they're sung. This is why when you break up and you need to process emotions, you listen to music. You don't read a chemistry textbook. Right? Because songs allow us to process and shape our emotional lives. It takes truth and makes truth catch fire within us. And also, we're to sing together. And this is one of the constant themes we've been talking about in Ephesians. Singing, we're to do, sing these truths to one another. Listen, you know, self-talk can kind of move you for a little while, I guess. But the voice of a community is far more powerful. This is why parents are so paranoid about peer pressure. Peer pressure is not a bad thing. Peer pressure about bad things is a bad thing. But we all recognize that it's actually very powerful. 
And when we are peer pressured toward good things, that's a great thing. The Bible commends it. It's commended right here. Right? We need the church around us walking and stumbling and falling and getting up and singing with us and to each other. It's just a good illustration. I hate using CrossFit illustrations. I do CrossFit in my garage, and there's nothing more miserable than doing something hard by yourself. And there are nights when I'll go out there and I'll work out by myself, and I'll stumble, and I'll get tired, and I usually quit. And I'll shut the lights off, and I'll call it a night. But when 5 or 10 or 15 of y'all show up, you know what happens? I still stumble, and I still get tired, but I go harder and faster than I ever could alone. Because y'all's words, our words, get us back up off the ground and renew our zeal. You can't do any of this by yourself. can't do any of this without singing. And so you see, Paul closes the passage with the the reiteration of the call to love. So submit yourselves to the community of God's people. The, The book of Ephesians is a big recruitment for church membership, by the way. I know it's not cool, but that's what it is. Submit yourselves to the community of God's people because God says, Yes, you cannot do this walk alone to imitate your Father. We have to, and you can't do it without your brothers and sisters. Let's pray.